0: Abolition. Abolition. Uh, So this individual uh, who was part of an all-white panel on Fox News. And first of all, do we have to say all-white when we talk about Fox News? Okay. So this all-white panel on Fox News, they decided to discuss Representative Cori Bush's um, July 4th tweet. And here's a bit of how she introduced the segment.
1: The White House briefing set to start any minute now as we await reaction to the verbal fireworks over 4th of July. After some Democrats, left-wing activists, and even the news media smeared the all-American holiday with claims of racism. Squad member Corey Bush, blasting Independence Day, tweeting, quote, When they say that the 4th of July is about American freedom, remember this. The freedom they're referring to is for white people, while NPR took issue with the Declaration of Independence, calling it, quote, a document with flaws and deeply ingrained hypocrisies. All this bashing leading to the New York Post front cover page, which read, red, white, and woke, with its editorial board asking, quote, why do liberals in the media, Take such joy in trashing America. The haters never take a day off from hating, that is clear. Uh, and they never take a day off of getting the facts wrong. Uh, we know most of our forefathers, all of our main founding fathers, were against slavery, recognized the evils of it. There's a great piece to that end on Heritage called 1776, not 1619. But I'll leave it to you. You know They're so wrong and so much. Where to begin?
0: My grandmother would have said, use a damn lie. Now, no, the founding fathers were for slavery. Um, George Washington enslaved hundreds of men, women, and children. Thomas Jefferson enslaved over 600 people, including Sally Hemings. James Madison enslaved over 100 people. James Monroe, as many as 250 people.
2: It all starts with the question: Where are we from? What is the purpose of this song? Maybe taking out the hit from the bomb. What's the metaphysical truth? The secret of eternal youth? What makes the universe move? Uh, a lot of things they don't want you to know. The secrets of the ancient Greeks a long time ago. Energies, vibrations, and flows. Technology stolen from the ancients below. Join me on a discovery trip, see all the lovely shit, take off your novelty wig, and embrace the fact that things are not what they seem, ascend to a higher state of being, you feel me? A lot of things they keep in from us, various discoveries of gods and aliens, trapped beneath the ice, you should need my advice, recognize the lies and use your own eyes. So it's missed quite a bit of polish, quite a time, you're with real. You may be ideal, what do you feel? It's not question, what do we know about the UFO that crashed down in New Mexico? Took one alive and analyzed the crap, the other two died, but this time at last we got a thing to reverse engineer. Anti-gravitation has been here for many years, the phenomenon is well understood. Walking on the sun, I bet you we could, huh? To the moon, but not with these new fabrications they show you dude, black projects are light years away, the rockets are just there to entertain, we've been in contact with alien races, racists, made exchanges, sent people to their bases, we know about half a dozen of them, some are hostile, others want to be friends. So it's missing quite a bit of knowledge Let it stop you from seeing what's real You made the idea, what do you feel? What's the most? You know, you can see you What if atheism and nihilism are deceiving? What if those rituals do hold power? What if they counter the evil people in the tower? Maybe the church is a fake. Maybe it distracts you from having faith. All the miracles are still unexplained Maybe a great many things got lost in translation We are part of the whole If you still have a soul prayers work, no need for a paper roll If your heart is pure Then you just found a cure I'm sure you will be safe and secure Separated in the flesh the divine spark. We're connected like a mesh in the dark If we tend and give in to our heart, The evil will depart and leave us in Before a new start Things, luminous things, you do about a beautiful
1: wing, so for the hidden I'm forbidden knowledge, it's not the written so it's quite a bit of polish, time it, it may be ideal. Abolition, abolition, abolition,
3: abolition. abolition.
1: Can not hear you, Yusuf?
4: That's because I forgot to mute myself.
5: You just heard <laughs> Kylie McEnany, and she's lying about the founding father's connection to slavery. But thankfully, Dr. Rashad Ritchie was there to clear that up, and that was followed by forbidden knowledge by Tommaso de Donatis. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and also on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Max Parthus. Peace, Max.
3: Uh, peace, Yusuf. I'm here at the Paul Coffee Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. And pardon if my voice sounds a little different. I had to use my phone to uh, call in today. We're having a few technical issues, but everything's gonna be fine.
5: Yeah, we're used to that by now. But the show must go on, and we're gonna. Uh, slap somebody tonight, man. That's how I feel after listening to that forbidden knowledge. I just feel like slapping somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: I thought that was pretty hot, too. As a matter of fact, I'm hoping it gets a bump. It only had like 50 views on YouTube, and it was pretty awesome, and it fit perfectly to what I was trying to say there. And I, I think the author is Interrupt uh, is his name. But, yeah, man, you know, um, they're on Fox News lying straight to our faces of our history as if they're experts when they're talking, as my grandmama would say, out the wrong side of their body. You know, she (laughs) usually a bit more colorful. But they were straight lying, talking about the founding fathers was anti-slavery. Like, how could you be anti-slavery and own slaves at the same time? How can you be anti-molestation when you're getting Sally Hemings pregnant when she's a young teenager? And she's your wife's sister. So it's even incest. Like, yeah, they don't understand their founding fathers, and they'll believe anything somebody tells them. Like, I was watching T V TV uh, show de- uh, earlier yesterday with Dr. Ritchie, and he was yeah mm-hmm. uh, showed where this comedian, pretending to be a journalist, went to a uh, QAnon rally. And at the QAnon rally, he started asking about the Nazis on Mars. And let me tell you, these people believe there's Nazis on Mars, and they was breaking down the whole <laughs> oh, thing. Oh, my God like, oh, my God, yeah. The Nazi on Mars. It's like that movie Iron Sky is real in their mind.
5: Exactly, exactly. And we're going to see what happens when this moonfall comes out next month.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know, right?
5: Yeah, so last week uh, you and I, we we answered the two most uh, prevailing questions that always keep coming up. If changing the Constitution is symbolic, And then what comes next? And so we also had a special interview with the Rikers inmate, courtesy of Tag Harmon from Root & Branch, New York. So this week, we'll examine the 13th Amendment as it passed through the courts. We're going to look at the history as how the courts have dealt with the 13th Amendment from 1865 up until today. And our research provides some shocking conclusions Things you weren't supposed to know and weren't supposed to be looking for at all. But we looked and on abolition today we're gonna to expose this forbidden knowledge. So this is a must hear episode, one which could be used in trials holding the US responsible for crimes against humanity, which they knowingly purposefully committed. And of course we'll have powerful music mixes and the voices of the ancestors reclaimed without bridging the gap segment. So Max uh before we jump into that how was your week brother
3: Man my week was so epic that I'm going to have to dedicate a whole show to it next week that, that's how For I, sure. so it is to say Um you know we had the Vermont hearings uh this week uh the mm-hmm. committee hearings on uh, removing the exception clause all three of them from the father of all exception clauses and we had an opportunity to speak uh as a group the people from all over the country swarmed Vermont's committee hearing <laughs> and broke it down for them. It was an amazing, epic moment. And the next day we heard them discuss what they'd heard and seen and the influence they had on them. And all of their minds was really blown. Like they, we taught them things they had no clue about their own state uh, and it affected them directly and deeply. And they voted uh, to pass it 10 to 1. <laughs> So and the one, so always that one. And you know, you know um, the shame about uh, it, it—it was kind of shameful because the one Republican, of course, he's white, is Vermont. The one Republican mm-hmm. that voted no did it in front of a high school class who had been following this case to see it come to this point, and they got to speak on it at the at the end, or at least the teacher got to speak on it at the end. That that was amazing too. To see this one Republican, but no, I want to keep slavery in 2022.
5: Right. See, I wasn't able to testify. I had, I had uh, another meeting at the time, but part of what I wrote, you know, in my uh, email, you know, say you they allowed people to write in emails. We found that out at the last minute, and I said, you know, anyone who votes against this is actually voting to keep slavery in the Constitution. To make it clear, it's none of those. You know, oh, I'm on the fence with this thing. It's an either or. Either you're for or against slavery, and Bob Leclerc is clearly against, uh, or he's for having slavery in the state of Vermont.
3: Yeah, and we're taking names. We got the names of every senator and member who has voted to keep slavery throughout the country. In Ohio, in Louisiana. And now in Vermont and in New Jersey We know who you are and we're going to start dropping names Real soon (laughs) We'll make you famous I'll make you famous As as epic was As epic as this past week was You are all going to hear Mm -hmm. about it next week We're going to break it down We're going to play different uh, testimonies From various people like Kamal Allen Nathan uh, Woodlip Stanley And uh, myself And even Tribal Rain And Gina Kennedy came, and uh, Demeter Bishop testified. Everybody was there, man. It was amazing, you know. Uh, So we're going to play that next week. This week, we want to share with you, as he said, some forbidden knowledge, information we weren't supposed to know. This is something that we discussed during our state operations meetings for the Abolish Slavery National Network. So what you'll be hearing is us with representatives all across the country learning about this together, courtesy of Brother Yusuf Hassan. Uh, it is amazing, and you definitely are going to be empowered by what you hear today with a better understanding and uh, a better knowledge of how to deal with what it is we're facing. Yusuf.
5: Hey, I'm ready to kick it off. All
3: right, man. That sounds like a plan, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're listening so, to well, Today with Max Sparks and Yusuf Asana. What was you going to say, bro?
5: Oh, I was just going to say... Uh... The recording speaks for itself, but we'll 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 give some brief commentary in the end. But everyone, sit back and enjoy. And uh, all of the cases that are going to be mentioned within the recording, you'll see them on our Abolition Today Facebook page.
3: Right. And if you want to ask a question at the end of this first half, call in at 515-605 9814. Remember to press 1 on your keypad. We'll take a couple questions in between the segments. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. Abolition. So, yeah, let's go ahead and get it started, but let me do a quick introduction. Uh, Pretty much everyone knows everyone here already. Mm -hmm. Um, Yusuf Hassan, I invited him here today. He's my co-host from Abolition Today and also a legal expert. And as I said last week, I would bring him in to show us some examples of how the 13th Amendment has been used as a block uh, in court cases and allowing them to uh, use indentured servitude, involuntary servitude, and slavery and human trafficking. So he's pulled out a few cases to show these examples for you. Uh, a little learning moment for us. And I uh, just want to say thank you, Yusuf, for uh, giving us your time today for this.
5: Sure, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, good seeing everyone again. Court. I know almost everyone on the phone, uh, oh, on the call, Mark Hughes, I know of you. I may be even spoken to you before, but let's jump right into it since our time. We our Amendment.
3: guest on Abolition Today one time? The okay, leader.
5: so yeah, right. I thought so. I thought so. Okay, so let's jump right into it. And so you all know that the 13th Amendment, uh, and all intents and purposes uh, took us or took anyone that was uh, subjected to incarceration. You know, they went from slavery, you know, chattel slavery to uh, imprisoned slavery just with the 13th amendment. So as I'm going through, I'm just going to sort of like take a historical point of view from the 13th amendment. I'm going to go through it quickly. You know, I'm not going to get into my regular lecture like I normally would because we'll be sitting here all day. But some of the key things that happened right after the enactment of the 13th Amendment, which was December 1865, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed by Congress. And U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter wrote when they reviewed it in the U.S. Supreme Court that Congress has the power. Under the 13th Amendment, rationally to determine what are the badges and incidents of slavery and the authority to translate that determination into effective legislation. So from day one, it was established that Congress is the one who uh, determines what is the 13th Amendment, how it should be applied federally and across the country. And so some of the first cases that were established dealing with the uh, 13th Amendment One of the first uh, major cases to come out was the case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, and this is from 1873, and this was in Louisiana. The case involved a group of private butchers, blah, 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 blah. It was basically a labor issue, and they were saying, you know, since we can only uh, conduct our labor in New Orleans, that we're basically, you know, if they, they claimed involuntary servitude. And so the court ruled that the main purpose of the 13th Amendment was, was to abolish African slavery and its incidents. But then the court went on to say that the Slaughterhouse case did not consider prison labor as an incident of slavery. So it made it it made it crystal clear at that point that prison labor is not slavery. This is what the courts were determined. It says once a person fell under the exception clause because at that time. They called it the Punishment Clause. The state is justified in depriving the person of his life and liberty. But then doing further research, there was a case in Virginia called Ruffin versus Commonwealth, and it said, you know, for the time that the person is doing their their service or serving their sentence in the penitentiary, he is in a state of penal servitude to the state. He has, as a consequent of his time, of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except those which the law and the humanity accords to him. He is, for the time being, the slave of the state. This is a court saying this. He is civiliter mortuus and is the state, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. The Bill of Rights is a declaration of general principles given... Uh, General Prince of the governor Society of Freemen and not of convicted felons and men civilly dead. So they're making it clear that the Bill of Rights does not apply to convicted felons or someone that's considered civilly dead. Such men are the slaves of the state undergoing punishment for heinous crimes committed against the laws of the land. While in this state of penal servitude, they must be subject to the regulations of the institution of... Uh, while they're inmates and the laws of the state to whom the service is due in expiation of their crimes. You sure.
3: Before you go on, I just wanted to make a couple notes about what you just read there. First, it was only six years after the ratification of the 13th Amendment, so it wasn't like the 13th Amendment and slavery was not fresh in their minds, and they immediately stated that if you're an inmate, you are basically a uh, a slave of the state not even basically that's what they said Said clearly said it (laughs) and it's as if you were a dead man so uh you have suffered civil death and you're not entitled to rights only the rights to which the law gives you and that's where we're at right now in the united states thank you i'm
5: glad you i'm glad you brought that up max because here's some other things that they so they made another distinction they made a distinction of What happens when a person violates a law or violates uh, rules within a prison? And so they categorized it as whether or not it was a felony. If it wasn't a felony, then they said uh, it is unquestionably in the power of the state to which his penal servitude is due to prescribe through its legislation uh, the mode of punishment as well as the manner of his trial. If he commits an offense not amounting to a felony – the superintendent is vested by law with authority to punish him by stripes, meaning whip him, or the iron mash, or the gag, or the dungeon. If he commits an offense in which which in law amounts to a felony, then he has the privilege of a trial by jury a court of justice to which special jurisdiction is given for that purpose. So this really established also the law stating that You know, they can carry out their own punishments within the the prison system. So they're a slave of the state. This is all mentioned in the same case. They're a slave of the state, and they can be disciplined in a manner that the state saw fit, except in cases that they committed a felony, some murder, things of that nature. Then it has to go
3: out to the courts. Yusuf, I will continue to interrupt you throughout. Just add. Yeah,
5: anytime, jump in, and if anybody has any knowledge on any of these topics, please jump
3: in. Well, uh, what I want to again connect it to today, where, for instance, here in South Carolina, the men who were behind bars supporting the strike, the nationwide strike, used uh, cell phones, uh, contraband, and they shared via social media, and the prison gave them one year for every post. Some men got 30 years, another man got 40 years for the post. They didn't go to court for this. The prison decided what the punishment was and gave people life sentences for social media posts.
5: Absolutely. That's that's exactly the case. So at this point, we're in 19... We dealt with 71 and 73. Fast forward to, 19, to 1883... This is uh, what was called the Civil Rights Cases. This was a collection of five federal uh, cases in which the Supreme Court held that the 13th and 14th Amendments did not empower Congress to outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals. Yeah, you heard that right. So they're basically saying that, you know, you can racially discriminate against someone if you're a private individual. This is is what was going on at the time. that There was nothing uh, regulating. Uh, uh, regulating discrimination at that time. It says, the holding that the 13th Amendment did not empower the federal government to punish racist acts done by private citizens will be overturned in 18- 1968 in uh, Jones versus Mayor, and I'll cover that case later on. So the 14th Amendment not applying to private entities, however, is still valid to this day. While the decision holding for the 14th Amendment has never been overturned, In the 1964 case, Heart of Atlanta Motel versus U.S., the Supreme Court held that Congress could prohibit racial discrimination by private actors under the Commerce Clause, though that and other loose interpretations of the clause to expand federal power have been subject to uh, criticisms. So why is this important? This is the moment when the 13th and 14th Amendments were actually separated by the courts. Prior to this, cases were brought and they dealt with you know as we all know you know all of you here are very intelligent and you know a lot of the stuff i'm saying i'm sure you've heard before but the 13th 14th and 15th amendments were the they referred to as either the civil war amendments or the reconstruction amendments and they were used as one but this case was the one that separated the 13th and 14th amendment and so once you separate the 13th Amendment from the 14th Amendment, then that takes away the equal protection scrutiny that's afforded by the 14th Amendment. So I give you an example, you know, for an incarcerated individual, if they want to bring a 1983 lawsuit, which is a lawsuit against the prison and against the officials, then they have to exhaust all of their remedies. And there are so many barriers to exhausting their remedies, and I'm sure Curtis and I'm sure uh Samuel can attest to that There's so many things in your way to exhausting all of your remedies that a lot of times by the time you can even exhaust your remedies, now your statute of limitations is passed so the The reason that that violates a person's equal protection is as a private citizen, you know if I'm out on the streets and I want to bring a lawsuit against someone. You know, there's very limited things I need to do as far as exhausting my remedies. But in the prisons, you know, you have to start with a grievance, you know, and then from the grievance, then there's an appeal to the grievance and it has to go up to the uh, warden. It's a whole system that it has to go through before they can actually bring the Some case states court.
3: don't have a grievance uh, process <laughs>
5: like Alabama. <laughs> Damn. You know, so again, and... So, Max, since you brought that up, uh, what, what's the process of bringing the 1983 in Alabama? Are you, are you aware of that?
3: No, I'm not. But I do know that the Department of, Correct, uh, the Department of Justice has investigated twice and determined that these are rampant Eighth Amendment violations happening, and we're still waiting for anything behind that, too. So not only are the grievances not being heard, but a clear violation of our their constitutional amendments shows that they have no constitutional amendments.
6: For the Got most you. part,
2: um, people are having to bring forth like class action lawsuits, and I know I know an attorney that he's trying to help a couple of people, but um, it's very difficult when there's only one um, person involved. Absolutely, as you can see. absolutely, and so is.
7: Um, Sure. One second. I'll, I'll speak to the Alabama issue. If a, a state system does not have a grievance system, then in 1983 um, suit can go directly to the court system. But if there is a grievance system in place in your state, you have to exhaust every um, available remedy that you have. So the Alabama um, offenders or slaves or inmates could actually go directly to the courts. And that's kind of beneficial it's better than most systems if the guys actually knew how to do it and this process people go to college for eight years to become Mm. lawyers so we got guys that are just coming in and they can't prosecute the cases and we also have the Frivolous Lawsuits Act so if you know you gotta pay $560 to get your case in court and maybe Mm. it was just about um, a guard tearing up a $50 pair of jeans you understand what I'm saying? So the, right. the process is just crazy. Um one other thing before I let you continue, um, when you talked about the slaughterhouse case and the cases that they came after it with the fourteenth and thirteenth amendment, the the pro um discriminators were the argument was basically if the blacks are not man enough to protect themselves, then they don't deserve the right of the federal government to protect them. Um the Professor Charles Lane wrote a book about it called The Day Freedom Died. It's when the Supreme Court made these rulings. So if you guys get an opportunity, try to get those books, The Day Freedom Died by Charles Lane. It will break down the slaughterhouse case and all the way up to, as a matter of fact, Yusuf, you should write a book. But thank you, guys.
5: <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that, Curtis. Uh, I'm going to definitely look into that book because it was a huge decision that came out of that case. So, uh, another ruling that came out of the civil rights cases was it's never been doubted therefore that the power vested in Congress to enforce the appropriate legislation includes the power to enact laws direct or primary operating under the acts of individuals whether sanctioned by the state, by state legislation or not. You're going to hear that as a common theme. Many of these cases reach that same determination that you know uh, Congress has the power to enforce legislation. And it went on further to say it was for that purpose that the second clause of that amendment, section two of the 13th Amendment, which says that Congress shall have the authority by appropriate legislation to carry into effect the article prohibiting slavery. Who is to decide what that appropriate legislation is to be? The Congress of the U.S. And it is for Congress to adopt such appropriate legislation as it may think proper so that it, so that it be a means to accomplish the end. And so all of the cases that came after the civil rights cases basically followed the same ruling. They just took that hands off approach. And if it wasn't uh, something dealing with uh, a private individual being subjected to involuntary servitude, the court just deferred to the civil rights cases. Then came the Bailey versus Alabama decision. And, in the Bailey versus Alabama decision, it was pretty much the same thing where you had a person, uh, Bailey contracted to work on a farm for a year at $12 a month. He quit after a month and did not return the $15 advance that was given to him. Under Alabama law, Bailey's act was criminal. He was convicted and sentenced to 136 days of hard labor under the Alabama peonage law. The court ruled that the law was a restriction on his personal rights. Judged by its effect and not by its pretense, the law violated the 13th Amendment. Involuntary servitude meant more than slavery. But again, this is a situation where this is something that uh, started outside of the courts and it was still dealing with labor. It's still not dealing with uh, forced work. Or the court dealing with what is the term, what is involuntary slavery, to, uh, involuntary servitude, or slavery within the prison system, and they made a similar ruling in 1944 in Pollock versus Williams. So we keep hearing this recurring theme of Congress doing something. So Congress started passing certain little laws over the time. So there was the hawes Cooper Act of 1929 which banned the importation of convict-made goods from other states. Then in 1935, the ashurst Summers Act came along, and it made it unlawful to knowingly transport an interstate or foreign commerce goods made by convict labor. And then in 1936 came the Walsh-Healy Act, where it banned convict labor on federal procurement contracts in the manufacture production or furnishing of any materials, supplies, articles or equipment used in government contracts, where the amount thereof exceeds <laughs> ten thousand dollars. So it's good to have these, this stuff in your arsenal when you want to start challenging your state constitutions and the involuntary slavery to, and involuntary servitude and slavery within those systems to see how they were applied in your state, if they exist within your state legislation. And I see that there's a hand-raised abolish yeah. slavery National Network.
3: I just oh, wanted to Matt. say, yeah, it's me. I just wanted to say also that all of those things are being violated right now. We are importing good across state boundaries and national boundaries made by inmates here in the United States. When you get on a call a oh, uh, call bank, like with A&T, for instance, people are calling from all over the world. So this is uh, a already being violated, every one of those.
5: <laughs> it's funny. So uh, as we'll see later on, we'll see why they're able to violate these. In 1963, there was a case called Draper versus Ray that was held in the Ninth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals. And it was determined where a person is duly tried, convicted, sentenced, and imprisoned for a crime in accordance with law, no issue of peonage or involuntary servitude arises. The 13th Amendment has no application where a person is held to answer for a violation of a penal statute. So basically, they're upholding the exception clause. In 1968, there came Jones versus Alfred H. Mayer Company, and it said the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and established universal freedom. The enabling clause, which is section two of the amendment, granted Congress the unqualified power to abolish all institutions and practices resembling slavery instituted by public and private actors. It was for that purpose that the second clause of the amendment was adopted, which says that Congress shall have the authority by appropriate legislation to carry into effect the article prohibiting slavery. Who is to decide that appropriate legislation? Uh, I think I got I'm guilty of a copy paste error right here, but we mentioned this before that Congress has to determine what the appropriate legislation is. In 1970, there came a case Holt versus Sarver. This was the uh, U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Arkansas, and there was a farm, Cummins Farm in uh, Arkansas, where you know they just worked to the bone, and so. The Court ruled that life is common at Cummins wasn't slavery because the state does not claim to own the bodies of its prisoners. I'll read that again the state does <laughs> it wasn't slavery because the state does not claim to own the bodies of its prisoners work on the farm was servitude, and there is no doubt whatever that the servitude no doubt whatsoever that the servitude was involuntary, but it's equally clear that this servitude has been imposed as punishment for crimes, whereof the inmates have been duly convicted. The court is not persuaded that the system violates the 13th Amendment. When Congress submitted the 13th Amendment to the states, this is the same case going on, it must have been aware of generally accepted civil convict labor policies and practices, And the court is persuaded that the amendment's exception manifested a congressional intent not to reach such policies and practices. So this court was even saying, you know what, when they wrote that 13th Amendment, they knew what was going on inside of the prisons. And basically, if they wanted to change what was going on inside there, they would have written it into the law right then and there.
3: That's proof of intent.
5: Right. This is what this court believed. This is the Eastern District of Arkansas in nineteen seventy. They said, Look, if they wanted it to be anything else, they would have written it as something else. So here's the peculiar peculiar case, in fact. Someone just uh what did she say? Oh, Theta. Did you uh have anything to add about that, Theta? About Cummins? You said you took a field trip there.
4: Yes, we were in we were in high school. I grew up in Arkansas. Okay. So the the field trip to Cummins was was they were doing some sort of type of scared straight type of thing where mm-hmm. we all had to go to Cummins and you know and see what it was like in the prison. Um, so, and so I also had
5: labor and everything. They were out in the fields working yes. the farms.
4: And here I am now on the phone call with y'all. <laughs>
5: right, fifty two years later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put that out there because now that kind of like gets people to be able to calculate your age. (laughs) (laughs) So, here's another case. Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union. So, you had uh, incarcerated individuals at one prison in uh, North Carolina, and they were trying to form a labor union, you know, and they were trying to make it system-wide. So, The court ruled, and this was a U.S. Supreme Court case of 1977, it said, while litigation by prison inmates concerning conditions of confinement, challenged other than under the Eighth Amendment, is of recent vintage, this court has long recognized that lawful incarceration brings about the necessary withdrawal or limitation of many privileges and rights, a retraction justified by the considerations underlying our penal system. And... It went on further to, uh, oh, I did have another slide Oh, no, I didn't. So, so the, the case further went on. It was mentioning that basically they didn't have the ability to organize and and form a union because if they were able to form the union, then they could also start establishing what rules would go on within the within the jails. So that's why the court shot that down. What's up, Max?
3: Oh, I just want to add a comment. You know the Sure, court, absolutely. The court uses a lot of legalese, but where they said lawful incarceration brings about the necessary withdrawal of limitations of many privileges and rights, what they were saying is that the 13th Amendment takes away all your constitutional rights, and the only thing you get, as I stated earlier, is what they uh, decide you're supposed right. to have.
5: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So... Going back to when we were talking about these acts here. In 1979, Congress passed the Justice System Improvement Act, which is known as the Percy Amendment, and it permits waivers of the Ashurst, Sumners, and Walsh healy restrictions on interstate sale of prison-made goods and sale to the federal government, uh, provided that it gave certain uh, stipulations as to how they can do it and they just basically made everything legal for it so it just completely bypassed it uh you can refer to the percy amendment again copy paste error going on here and so the percy amendment also created what's called the private sector prison industry enhancement certification program better known as the pi program and this was the first step in allowing private companies to employ prison labor since most business markets cross state lines so this kind of like opened the door for private prisons to start getting uh, start being built. Max, is your hand still up or?
3: No, it was left oh, over. No. But yeah, you're right. We're moving into the Reagan area now, where they started asking for-profit private prisons to move into the United States.
5: Right. So then, uh, you know, I mean, there are just tons of cases that occurred between 1979 and. This case coming up in 1990 where the courts just continued with all of the previous decisions, you know, that they just basically dismissed all complaints and just said, you know, Congress has the has the lawful authority to adopt legislation, blah, 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 blah. Then came Mary versus Mississippi Department of Corrections. This is a U.S. Court of Appeals case, the Fifth Circuit in 1990. And it stated – now this is where they start, you know – Uh, making more uh, formal statements about the constitutionality of uh, prison labor. So it says, compelling an inmate to work without pay is not unconstitution. The 13th Amendment specifically allows involuntary servitude as punishment after conviction of a crime. And it said, compensating prisoners for work is not a constitutional requirement, but, but rather is by the grace of the state. So these are, this this is what the court, you know, just basically told everybody, say, look, and now they can force you to work, but they can force you to work without pay. And they're saying it's not uh, unconstitutional. And again, they would still refer back to Congress has the authority to do something about this. The courts don't. This is what they're clearly telling everyone in these cases. Another case that came out that year, Watson versus Graves. This is also in 1990 and also in the Fifth Circuit. So basically some of the same judges that ruled on Mary are also going to be ruling on Graves. And it says, this court has held that the requirement that incarcerated prisoners work without pay does not constitute involuntary servitude in violation of the 13th Amendment. A prisoner who is not sentenced to hard labor retains his 13th Amendment rights. However, in order to prove a violation of the 13th Amendment, the prisoner must show he was subjected to involuntary servitude or slavery. The court answered that it was irrelevant because the plaintiff had not been subjected to involuntary servitude. If the prisoner has a choice, there is no involuntary servitude. Work without pay does not constitute involuntary servitude. And what they said within this case is basically uh, even if there are court rules establishing that or uh, prison rules that establishes, you know, uh, certain penalties for not working, he's still making the choice whether or not to do those. They're not seeing it as, it's, as a form of force that you can be sent, it. you know, you can be put in solitary confinement or you can uh, lose certain privileges. They're still not considering that force. Max?
3: Oh, yeah, I just want to point out that that's in the Harvard Bellagio guidelines on slavery, where it says that if you're using coercion, uh, for instance, or deception, that it's still constituted as slavery. Sam could probably tell you a lot of so could uh, Curtis about whether or not you do a job. Like in New Jersey, where we've talked about on air, where if you refuse to work, that's a violation that is in the same category as if you had killed somebody mm-hmm. in New Jersey prison.
5: Right. So they're saying the only remedy in this case is really refusing to work and then uh, suffering the consequences of whatever the prison rules says are the consequences of not working, but it's still your choice. Sam or uh, Curtis, did you all want to say anything?
7: I think you're doing a great job, and um, I would like to just continue to listen.
5: Okay. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that.
3: Abolition. 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 All right. That was part one of uh, Yusuf's presentation for us, <clears throat> for the ASNN, on um, the history of the 13th Amendment in the courts. Uh, remember if you want to make a question or comment and you're already called in, press one on your keypad. Otherwise the number is five one five six oh five nine eight one four. Yusuf?
5: That was a lot. You know, sitting here listening to it, I'm I'm like, man, I covered a lot of stuff during that time. <laughs> it didn't seem like it when we were in the in the meeting and the only and the tank, we're only halfway through it. You know, there is a lot of stuff that got covered. We, we, uh, as 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 we said in the opening, you know, that we basically exposed something that wasn't supposed to be known. You know that it's clear and unequivocal that the intent was for slavery to be continued through the penal system, and the courts have said, look. We can't do anything about it The 13th Amendment says that Congress has to do something about it And this is why we have The Abolish Slavery National Network And we have the state operations And all of these states are Challenging their constitutions To have slavery and Involuntary servitude removed From them, Max
3: Right, right Uh, One of the things that I mentioned With the Harvard Bellagio guidelines And when it was talking about um, compulsory labor and how that mm-hmm. would not be slavery. And in the guidelines, they say that possession is foundational to slavery, right? Uh, that's the first right. thing. And they also have a distinction between slavery and forced labor. But in the United States, we show possession. Uh, we are li- they're literally state property, as you explained earlier on in it, through the uh, Commonwealth versus weapons case, uh, where the court ruled that you are literally property of the state, and that is possession, which we still hold to this day where, you know, people have numbers instead of names, and they have no rights to speak of. They are, whatever that Latin word was for civil death, civilly dead, as a dead man. Right. Um The distinction between slavery and and uh, forced labor, they say, is that Although forced or compulsory labor is defined by the 1934 Labor Convention as all work or service which is exacted from any person under the menace of any penalty and for which the said person has not offered himself voluntarily, forced labor will only amount to slavery when, in substance, there is the exercise of the powers attached to the rights of ownership. The exercise of the powers attached to the right of ownership. Man, <laughs> and they certainly own us because they're selling prison stocks on the open market. And we've listened to uh, clips from auctions where they were auctioning off prisons and stating very clearly that the selling point was they would be filled at all times.
5: Right, and that goes that goes against the Holt versus a uh, uh, sovereign. You know, the one where they were at Cummins and. You know, the court saying, well, it's not slavery because the state doesn't claim to own the body of its prisons. But we know that that's not the case. They do think that, and this is why, you know, I have an interesting article that I'd like to share. It's uh, Arkansas inmates are suing after being given ivermectin to treat COVID-19. This is what happens when you start thinking you own people. Four inmates at an Arkansas jail have filed a federal lawsuit after they say medical staff gave them the antiparasitic drug, ivermectin, to treat COVID-19 without telling them what it was. The inmates said that they were told the medicines they were taking were vitamins, antibiotics, and steroids. Federal health authorities and leading medical experts warned that ivermectin should not be used to treat the coronavirus, but a small group of doctors and a chorus of right-wing figures Go figure have endorsed the drug for COVID nineteen patients. So here's a case of medical experimentation. And we know especially when it comes to the black community, you know, why people are hesitant to go go and uh to to go and get the vaccine because we know of the the experimentation that's been done on the communities You know, when we talk about what they did to their their own soldiers, you know, in the Tuskegee experiment, and we know uh, when the doctor who created uh, something, I I forgot what it it is, but it's something dealing with uh, C-sections, and he did it without any type of anesthesia on black women. You know, and then we have this going on inside of the prisons, and it happens all the time. Many drugs are tested out inside of the prisons first before they even bring it to market. And they do situations like this. They say it's for vitamin, it's vitamins, it's antibiotics, it's steroids, but they're actually doing these testings, Max.
3: In the early stages, prior to let's say the mid eighties, they had this forced labor thing down pat within their court systems, you know? Um mm-hmm. they had already justified using the law the removal of all your rights, making you a a non-person, non-citizen, without ever actually giving those rights back, and being able to force you into compulsory labor. I think the problem really started blowing out proportions once they introduced for-profit industries into the Justice Department. When Mm -hmm. that started happening, things started to really depend on how many bodies were in beds. Now, how many are working? How many bodies are in your beds? How many facilities do you have? How how many jails, how many prisons, how how many people are in them? And the more you have, the more money you're making. Larger facilities, more people, it's more money. At one point, they had this prison here in South Carolina that only housed about six people, but they were charging like $200,000 a year per person. (laughs) Like it was a whole property, probably owned prison, probably one guy owned it and was housing six people at $200,000 a head. So that started to blow up what we see now as warehousing bodies, where the labor aspect isn't the primary thing anymore. It's about how many bodies can you get. And that's when we saw the prison population explode because the Clinton, uh, Clinton uh, administration in 1994 launched the omnibus bill, along with the initial public offerings of the Wacken Huts Corrections Corporation. You may know them mm-hmm. now as the GEO Group. And you see the growth that they've had since then. It was only a few years, and their stock had multiplied 10 times. And, and now they're a multi-billion dollar global corporation. Yusuf?
5: And, you know, we have to speak on who the... The grandfather or the grandparents of all of this is, you know, when we we have to talk about the Clintons, we have to talk about Joe Biden, but of course we'll be here speaking for days on their yeah, call.
3: That
5: <laughs> but <laughs> that's where it starts. Everything starts with them, you know. It starts really with Reagan. Under the uh, Comprehension Crime Control Act in 1984, and that was at the, you know, Joe Biden pushed him into that, and they, they were the ones to push him into going towards privatizing uh, con- privatizing control of the federal prison system, and that just opened the door from there, and we know the exponential growth of the prison system since then.
3: Since then, yep. Uh, shout out to Jeanette Smith. She is keeping up to date with these court cases and dropping them on our Facebook page at Abolition Today. So for those law students out there who are looking to learn a little bit more about how to deal with this, those links are all available for you on our page. Hey, you said we should go ahead and get into part two uh, where we get more into the modern cases so people can see where we're at at this point too. Okay. Sure. Why right. not? Um, once again, this is Brother Yusuf breaking it down for us from the rooter to the tutor about the 13th Amendment <laughs> through the courts. So you're listening to abolition today, abolition today dot dot com. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, abolition. So next abolition.
5: came this case, abolition. Vance Kike versus Peters. This is 1992 U.S. Court of Appeals, the Seventh Circuit. The court said that there is no federally protected right of a prisoner not to work while in prison after conviction, even though that conviction is being appealed. Prison rules may require appellant to work, but this is not the sort of involuntary servitude which violates 13th Amendment rights. And again, within the case, they said the same thing. You know, Congress has, has the authority to do something about it. So then I just fast forwarded because I just kept coming across a whole bunch of the same cases saying the same thing. And so now we jump to 2002, U.S. Court of Appeals, Second Circuit, U.S. versus Nelson. and contrast, the Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, which famously includes the language "No state shall," then it says Section One of the Thirteenth Amendment eliminates slavery and involuntary servitude generally, and without reference any and without any reference to the source of the imposition of slavery and servitude. Accordingly. It has been recognized from the amendment's enactment that Congress's powers under the 13th Amendment are not limited by any analog to the state action doctrine that was early deemed to restrict the 14th Amendment. The 13th Amendment, unlike the 14th, in and of itself reaches purely private conduct. So now they're laying out to say, look, you know. The 13th Amendment is only dealing with the private individual. It's not even dealing with institutions. This is only a person cannot force someone into slavery or involuntary servitude. Because in the 14th Amendment, they came straight out and said, no state shall, but they left that language out of the 13th Amendment. So their determination is that uh, since they didn't put that in the 13th Amendment, then it's not applying to states. Anybody want to chime in on that one? Any feelings on that one?
3: Um, I'm, I'm like Curtis. I'm rolling with you on this one right now, but I do see how it has unfolded where mm-hmm. the courts from the 1800s, just six years afterwards, said that you are slaves of the state. And then Congress did not counter that. And because of Congress immediately after slavery did not counter that all the way up to 2022, we're still assuming that's how it should be.
5: Yeah. Yeah, that's the common theme, and you noticed up to this point, I still haven't said, well, Congress went back and they clarified what they meant in the 13th Amendment. Nope, we're still under the same thing. What's up, Sean?
8: So on that last case, the U.S. versus Nelson, you said that the 13th Amendment uh, only applies to private contact. Does that mean private citizens, or does that include private corporations?
5: And again – Corporations as a citizen. Right.
8: Just as a citizen.
5: So it says the 13th Amendment in and of itself reaches purely private conduct, but it didn't go any further to establish what it meant by uh, private. Uh, but we do know that there's a distinction between a natural person and an institution or an entity as being a person. You know, But again, the court just basically said if it's not the government or the state that that's where the 13th Amendment applies, that it only applies when you're dealing with a private individual. Like, I cannot force you to work. You know, I can't force you, you know, to be my slave. I can't do that. If I was a prison or if I was a private prison contracted through the state, then I could force a person into working.
3: And call it voluntary.
5: And call it voluntary. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Sean?
8: Uh yes, I just was thinking. I heard private. I was thinking it might include a corporation as well, but it seems like it doesn't. So thank you. Well,
5: yeah, you they're know, real. They're
4: real tricky with the language, man. Yourself.
5: Yeah.
4: Yeah. uh? Wouldn't that to Sean's point? Um, you know, if you're talking about Citizens United, a, a corporation is a, you know, is a person. Yeah. I, I think Max was saying that a, a little while ago as mm-hmm. well. So I think the answer to your question, Sean, uh, and I don't know whether it's actually can be borne out in in what we've read so far, but if we're talking about something that's private, then yes, a corporation is private. Um, And if I, I don't know whether we've gotten to a point where we're talking about persons per se, but we're certainly not talking about the state in this case. So I think that corporation would, it seems as though that corporation would Um, fall within the purview of what this is outlining
5: sure uh and as we've seen in previous cases that whenever it was a private institution say for instance someone's job you know people always refer to slave wages and all of that stuff working like a slave they can't be forced to work you know say for instance if uh you take you take any company. and They just go around and they just start snatching people off the street as they did down, and I think it was New Mexico, you know, or Texas, where they were actually having people at gunpoint snatching uh, immigrants off the street and just forcing them to work on these farms. See, that would violate the Thirteenth Amendment. That's the only it. That's the only instance that I can think of where you know when they're talking about private and it also includes uh corporations but if a person decides to go to work every single day they work for a company and the company works them like they call it works them like a slave at work that doesn't violate the 13th amendment because they have a choice to go to work or not
7: can i um, chime in for a second
5: absolutely um
7: definitely remember bob dole um that the dole family actually um, took over Hawaii and forced the indigenous people of Hawaii to go to work um, to the the pineapple company, the the fruit company, as a matter Mm -hmm. of fact. And that was a big, serious case back then. And we studied um, lawyers like Clarence Darrell that dealt with the labor issues that were happening out in California. Mm -hmm. Um, Even to this day right now, and to Sean's question, everything that's not public is private any corporation, L L C um business is a person. So if if it's not the government, then it's um the private sector. So that that, that distinction is clear. In modern day time, right now, if you wanna sue your employer in the state of Louisiana, you the form of law you're going through is the master servant relationship. To this state. Hmm.
6: Hmm.
7: So this this in some states I mean, I'm not talking about the whole federal scheme of it, but in some states they still look at this um this this labor situation as a form of involuntary servitude because um or voluntary servitude i'm sorry, not involuntary servitude voluntary servitude because you're training your your time your hour for seven dollars or ten dollars or twenty dollars or whatever, but it's still the master servant relationship so it's, it's a slave situation either way.
3: There's one thing that I see here is very clear is that contrary to popular belief all across the country and worldwide, the 13th Amendment provides no protection versus the state.
5: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And here's another case. So I went from 2002 and I I just started getting exhausted. I said, because I was reading so many cases, and they all just came up to the same thing. So I said, okay, let's see what's going on nowadays. So I came up with this case, Morris versus UTEC. It's a 2021 case, U.S. District Court, Western, Western District of Washington. And it said, petitioner also contends his conviction and sentence violate the 13th Amendment's prohibition against slavery. There are no facts supporting this contention. If petitioners claiming he performs work activity in the prison in violation of the 13th Amendment, the claim fails. Although the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude, it it explicitly exempts forced labor that is imposed as punishment pursuant to a criminal conviction. And it repeats, you know, the 13th Amendment. Then it goes on to say, the 13th Amendment does does not apply where prisoners are required to work in accordance with prison rules and they cite Berry versus Bonnell Br- uh, which was decided in 1994 so again they're double, tripling and quadrupling down on it you know once the person has been duly convicted then they gotta work if the prison rules say you gotta work you gotta work and sure. there's no remedy in the courts for you question for you <clears throat> sure
4: is this a okay? Um, this is a state. This is a federal. This is a federal uh, case, right? Yes. Okay. Wouldn't it tell me tell me how it would be how it would be different if it was a state case?
5: Well, see, the reason it's a state case is because it's going against a government entity, and so therefore they had to take
4: it to the
5: federal government. The only way it could be dealt with on the state level is if it was a lawsuit against an individual.
4: No, what I'm getting at is the difference between federal prisons and state prisons when a person brings a charge of a violation of the 13th Oh, Amendment.
5: I see what you're saying. Well, no, these are state cases. Most of the cases I'm reading you are state cases. They're not like federal... Uh, federal prisoners bring in cases. They're on the state level, but because of the uh, immunity clause, they have to bring the case in federal court under 1983.
3: What's up, Max? Oh, I just wanted to say also uh, for Mark that, again, like the example we just had with the lawsuit in Colorado, the federal uh government is telling us that the 13th Amendment applies to every state, and whether you want slavery or not, you must abide by it in this manner. This is how it works. So without any kind of state protection, where now you have to deal with states' rights, you fall under that 13th Amendment. And the 13th Amendment is very clear. It provides no protection at all versus the state.
5: Very well said.
3: Appreciate well, when you that. get to the state,
4: when you get to the state's uh, state supreme court, because uh-huh. I would imagine that that is an avenue that one could take it, or that the case could go. It could either it could go up, it could hit the um, United States Attorney's office, I would imagine, um, but it could also go through the state supreme court. Well, well, the problem
5: with that, Mark, is, again, mm-hmm. if a person is bringing a lawsuit, if a person is in prison and they want to bring a lawsuit, they're barred from suing in state. So they have to go to the federal courts. That's because of the immunity clause. I'm not the immunity clause. What's the word I'm looking for? Somebody help me out here.
8: Don't look it's at me. I'm a
5: lawyer. It's the sovereignty. It's, it's the sovereignty clause. You know, the state is the sovereign. And so you can't. Sue the state or any of its uh institutions within the state court, so you have to go to federal court, so I understand what you're saying, and I, I get the rationale behind it, but there's just no remedy there. The court lacks jurisdiction on the state level
4: Can you not um in every state most states there well, in all states, I'm sure there is a state um equivalent of the um United States Attorney's Office that in our state we call it the human rights commission mm-hmm. um, which has jurisdiction to pursue uh public accommodations and and I believe uh employment in some um uh, some housing mhm um, I guess they do that with the authority of federal statute
5: so again remember we were talking about exhausting remedies Mm-hmm. This is another instance where if those type of remedies exist within the mm-hmm. state, say for instance, there's the uh, inmate advocate's office mm-hmm. uh, and other offices like that, they still have to go all the way through that before they can even bring the case to court. Okay. You know, so, but when it comes to the courts themselves, the court on a state level, you know, a person in a state facility, then the state lacks jurisdiction to, br- To handle a claim against that institution that it has to go federal because of the sovereignty clause or the immunity clauses different names used for it, but it would have to go federal and again we're talking about a federal amendment and as Max explained that the 13th amendment is meant to be dealt, you know, across all the states done everyone. So another case that came, you know, I say, you know, well, what happens when you want to uh, do a monetary claim, you know, based on the Thirteenth Amendment, and I came up with this case, Manning versus the United States, and this is uh 2021, and this was held in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, and it says the claim co- the claims court lacks jurisdiction over claims based on Fourth, Eighth, Sixth, Thirteenth, and Fourteenth Amendments and the due process clauses of the 5th and 14th because they are not money mandating. This court, however, cannot because it does not mandate the payment of money damages for its violations. So Court of Claims said, look, there are no fines associated with violating the 13th Amendment, so there's basically nothing we can do about it. That went over my head. Okay, so... In other words, if you was if, so there are the other claims where people are making claims of, uh, so like violation of 14th Amendment equal protection or saying that certain conditions within a prison violates the 13th Amendment prohibition against involuntary servitude and slavery. But what happens when someone wants to sue for monetary damages? You know, not only they bring in a thirteenth amendment claim, but they also want to get paid because they're being violated. And the and the uh US Court of Federal Claims said that they can't handle that because there's nothing monetarily attached to any of those amendments. They basically can't do anything about it. Does that answer your
4: question? Yeah, I think so. I think what you're saying is, is that the that the amendments don't clearly state that that monetary um that a mon- monetary option is even available.
5: That's exactly right.
4: Okay.
3: Yeah. Yes, sir. yeah. Before you move on, I just wanna say that I have to leave in two minutes, so I wanted to just say thank you again for participating and giving us this vital information that helps with our understanding and presentation of our own case. Um I appreciate you and your time. Um, I've got to work with Oregon in about five minutes to get, make sure that they have the ability to start taking donations and stuff like that. And uh, I hope that the rest of the team hangs on afterwards to discuss these things amongst yourself, because I'm sure you've got questions and have come to certain conclusions. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's very clear the 13th Amendment does nothing. There's nothing they can do versus the state. And they've shown that over and over again. And it's not because it's a mistake. It's because that's how they want it. So you can't challenge this. All right. There it
5: is. All right. I See you on the air tomorrow, brother. See
3: you on the air tomorrow. Savannah, you got the rest of this. Peace, everybody. Peace.
1: All right. Thanks.
5: Peace, Max. So just like Max was basically saying, the summary conclusion is there's nothing that you can really do against the state. So then I, you know, I started coming up. So. There was a case right here that was very interesting. It's called uh, McGarry versus Polito. It's from 2012, U.S. Court of Appeals. And so (laughs) this person, his name was Fenbar McGarry. He was in county jail. He was a pretrial detainee. And they forced him to work. You know, he had to work in the laundry. And so he decided to sue the jail and the U.S. District Court. uh, wrote that McGarry's 13th Amendment claim was without merit because his laundry work, quote-unquote, was nothing like the slavery that gave rise to the enactment of the amendment. So, (laughs) So in other words, that judge was saying, you know, because he wasn't being whipped or he wasn't being sold or all of the other atrocities that came with chattel slavery, then he had no claim. But the U.S. Court of Appeals, they determined that uh, McGarry did not have to prove that his existence was akin to those of African slaves before abolition. It says involuntary servitude is not limited to chattel, chattel slavery like conditions. And it said again, this amendment was intended to prohibit all forms of involuntary labor, not solely to abolish chattel slavery. But again, the reason this was applied to him is because he wasn't duly convicted. And so, therefore, he he wasn't – they couldn't legally subject him to involuntary servitude and slavery. And that's why he got the relief in that one. And there's one other case. I didn't make a slide for it, but it shows you – the I wanted to show the ridiculousness or, again, the intent and knowledge that they have when it comes to the 13th Amendment. There's a case – That uh, made national attention, you know, many years ago, it was called Telecom versus SeaWorld. And this is where Peter went on to sue SeaWorld on behalf of the five orcas that were there using the 13th Amendment. And the court basically said in that case, look, uh, the 13th Amendment is meant to be dealing with humans. It's a human condition. You know, and it said that in order to – hold on, let me scroll through my notes. So in essence, the court was really just saying that uh, since they're not human, then the 13th Amendment doesn't apply to them. That was their ruling on that one, you know, and that was just a sidebar one. That one really didn't have anything to do with the presentation, but just showing that the courts know how to distinguish a pretrial detainee from someone that's being held in state. So that made it clear that they know. They know the difference because they said within this case, they basically said that because he was a pretrial trainee and pretrial detainee and hadn't been duly convicted, then they couldn't force him to work. He didn't have to work based on the rules of the jail. And and that's why they – ruled in his favor. So just in closing, I'd like to quote what Representative Martin Thayer of Pennsylvania said when they uh, established the 13th Amendment. So he said, when I voted for the amendment to abolish slavery, I did not suppose that I was offering a mere paper guarantee. And when I voted for the second section of the amendment, I felt certain that I had given to Congress ability to protect the rights which the first section gave. So again, going back to the intention that this wasn't meant to be symbolical, it was meant to be uh, intentional, but as we see throughout every case that I presented, and I mean, it's hundreds of other cases, just like it, maybe even thousands, where every case comes down to one thing, Congress has the authority to do something about it, So, until Congress steps up and they enact a law that actually takes away involuntary servitude, takes away slavery as punishment for a crime, then that's going to always be allowed. The courts are going to be hands-off on it, and this is why we all are here today where we are. So, that's the presentation for today.
8: I'm open for any questions, if anyone has any questions forbidden knowledge can destroy mankind i spend large hours of my days alone i don't believe we share this universal space alone i think we got a lot from them they gave us phones internet and now we all know what is forbidden knowledge forbidden knowledge is too great for a man Think if man can read your mind, you think that man understands? How to use it with integrity, not conquering land. Would it be good if we increase the lifespan? Well, that's forbidden knowledge. Forbidden knowledge can destroy mankind. We can grow out of control like cancer under the skin of Mother Nature. Busy cities, much alike to a tumor. Too many cells, to the residents, the bodies polluted. I say Wusa, and Ali the Chubby dooby, the Judah, child of Jacob. I know my history. I know we are Moors. There's a universe in her, Afro. Hold us back, though. There's a power in the black folks. Well, that's forbidden knowledge. At first, they want to keep us separate but equal. But it's not. So we fight against the hatred and evil. Now they let us think we got it and they killing our people. Why does history repeat like a sequel? Well, that's forbidden knowledge. It's got a man watching TV like people. Rewinding his favorite parts to playing back like a tivo. Have I wrote this shit before? It all feels like a redo. And deja vu is left to die like our dreams do. But that's forbidden knowledge. I have some shocking memories as a kid. Waking up onto a table, a lab, some type of biz. Too vivid to be a nightmare. Mom would tell me that shit. Can't remember anything that they did. Yes, that's forbidden knowledge.
6: knowledge. Forbidden knowledge
8: our dreams another kind of preview to heaven we manifest a reality based on our personality karma from shit we did since the day we were seven so did you share toys or did you masturbate 11. I'm just a 90s baby and millennial kid Indigos goes on the rise to make perennial shift Hope this music stands long as redwoods Sequoias, pyramids, and stones like stones from Stonehenge Come on, let the future tell the truth Cause you a shell of you, you played your cards wrong Now you got hell in you Be glad I still retain respect for you Cause I got bullets that'll kill you If your best is hell and heaven proof I never understand your corporate greed Just a group of people, all they want is more than they need Signing off on papers, blinded to the pain overseas Blood resulting from the ink that they bleed But that's forbidden knowledge
9: gunshot in the park I hop skipping a dark way from the gunshot that rang out in the neighborhood where the youth misunderstood fighting over concrete squares for the just ain't no good I think the agenda's meant to kill us all. Like, what good is education long as you can ball? Standing on the couch inside the club and hit the mall. Barely feed a bum, but you buy it all. I think they laughing now. Cause while we watching some cable, they were talking about the economy, headcroppers and staples. How to keep a horse running his course. Give him some blinders so that he lack like when most fools ever right. Beside him is on kind. I pray you dig deeper if you don't find what you're looking for on the surface. The knowledge that you need can't be next to a church. You ever build a that you every bit of worth it, not worthless. You kings and queens will Men for the things then flexing on the seams Or bursting out the seams of your blouse That you told yourself you never were outside your mama's highs cause the energy it lends put strong Women down, down Brother look, you don't need to go to jail Just to read you a book, I wonder what Malcolm Found after going to Mecca, or the Mind state of Martin after visiting Selma Two leaders that were slain for speaking the topic On the schemas and the reapers of Forbidden knowledge Knowledge, knowledge
3: Knowledge, Abolition, today, abolition
1: today. Abolition. Abolition.
3: No, go ahead, brother. You got it. Part two of the 13th Amendment through the courts, featuring, uh, at the end, you heard Rory with Forbidden Knowledge, featuring Big Crit, uh, courtesy of Yusuf Hassan here. Uh, I know this was very deep today, uh, but we do tend to say that we're a master class on slavery abolition, and you got your money's worth today. Uh, So we went into the deep waters, and we got a couple things clarified so we understand something a great deal better now. Uh, And there's some comments I want to make, but I'm going to go ahead and pass to you first, brother. All right.
5: Thank you, brother. Uh, First and foremost, uh, just remember anyone that wants to get their hands on all the links, all the links to every case that was mentioned in both, you can find them on our Abolition Today Facebook page, uh, secondly, my mom says she really loves the lyrics to uh, Forbidden Knowledge. <laughs>
6: yeah,
5: I, I'm loving that. Uh, also, some other things. Uh, I also posted the link for the definition of qualified immunity and sovereign immunity. Those are the two terms that I kept getting twisted up on in the uh, presentation. Uh, and qualified immunity deals with the individual. Sovereign immunity deals with the state or federal entity and was so unique about that sovereign immunity you know it's it refers to the fact that the government cannot be sued without its consent (laughs) you know i've always thought that that was crazy you know and i can violate your rights and then i'm like yeah you know what no you can't sue me (laughs) uh also when i mentioned about those that were being forced into work it was actually in south georgia And this was just recently. They got indicted on December 13, 2021, where you had uh, migrant workers who paid for help entering the U.S. ended up forced to perform farm labor for little to no pay. So uh, they were forced to live in uh, dirty, cramped trailers with little food or clean water. Some would have been promised to be paid up to $12 an hour with their bare hands and got paid only 20 cents per filled bucket as men's men with guns kept them in check according to court records at least two of them died and another was raped repeatedly so this is an example of how when the the determination was the individual could not enslave someone so when it said uh that was in the u.s versus nelson case where they said the 13th amendment in and of itself reaches purely private conduct. Here's an example of where the private individual cannot do this, but as we've seen in the past, uh, where those that were at Angola were forced, Angola prison, they were forced to go out and work the fields during the pandemic, and they were forced at gunpoint. That is legal, but because of the 13th Amendment Exception Clause. That's the difference between the two. It makes it clear. Unequivocally clear, Max.
3: Yeah, that's one of the the big takeaways from this whole uh, presentation that you put together, is that uh, two things actually are key. One is that they depend on the exception clause. They use it. Sovereign immunity. It gives them sovereign immunity so that they can't Mm -hmm. even be held responsible for committing crimes against humanity unless they give you the okay. Uh, The second thing is that Congress is key to this. Congress can define what these things mean. Congress can enact laws that manage badges and incidents of slavery. Uh, So Congress has got to get on board with this, which is one of the things we are seeing happen as we move forward. (laughs) Immune. The United States is immune, has made itself immune in its own country to practice slavery and forced labor. Yep.
5: That's exactly it. And, and this was not I'm by trying accident. To recall, yes. No, it's not by accident. I'm trying to recall which case it was where it unequivocally gave the prison just the absolute authority over the individual, where it even said, you know, it can determine its own punishments to give them where it could whip them, it could, you know, put them in the dungeon, which we know is the hole. And so when we hear of the beatings that people go through inside there and nothing ever happens, you never hear of, or it's rare that you hear of officers being charged for severely beating someone or beating them to death. And again, it's because of that sovereign immunity and that qualified immunity. And the courts having that hands-off approach because they look at prisons as being autonomous and their their own entity, they're their own government, they set their own rules.
3: You know, I, I believe in the, in achieving the impossible, and I can say that both in a good and a bad way. For example, here in the United States, people tend to forget we have the largest prison population that's ever existed in in on planet Earth. They forget it. Right. Like, they'll talk about people that need help and uh, freedom and being the freest state, and they don't even count their prisoners. Like, they don't exist. Not only are they civilly dead behind the bars, they're civilly dead between your ears. You know? I
5: need you to say that again.
3: Not only are they civilly dead behind bars, but they're civilly dead between your ears. We mm. we just forget it. Like, they don't even matter. And, like, all of them deserve everything they get. And that's a sick society to even have your mind set like that. And it's only the tip of the iceberg because we're talking about 2.2, 2.4 million people who are in prisons, right? But there's, mm-hmm. uh, for the past two decades, over 10 million people go through our jails every year. Just for the past two decades, it consistently 10 to 14 million every year are put into admitted into local jails right now uh there are 113 million people in the united states who have had an immediate family member that was behind bars 113 wow. million of us and wow. these are numbers that are beyond imagining uh they say here uh one in seven adults has an immediate family member that spent at least one year in prison, one in seven. And one in 34 adults has an immediate family member who spent 10 years or longer in prison. And they say that there's an estimated 6.5 million who have an immediate family member currently incarcerated or jailed in prison. That's one in 38. There are more, they say there are more than 2.4 million people incarcerated in the United States. I do want to point out the fallacy of the average that is being presented at. when they say one in 34, they're talking about the entire nation, including people mm-hmm. who are not directly affected by this. So you right. might go to Wisconsin and Milwaukee, where it's more than one in two black men are in prisons. And, uh, you know, that makes a big difference. So that is a fallacy of the average just by using even those who are not affected as part of the percentage. So, and you I know, they criminalize it in these days, and then they also have these paths to prison that are set up on purpose, like the school-to-prison pipeline, the fines and fees, the warrant industrial complex. Uh, I was just uh, communicating with jailhouse Lawyer speak a few days ago, and they were making an appeal to raise some money, $179, not a lot of money, but let me tell you why. The message said a parole person needs aid. We have a comrade that has been out for four months after 19 years in prison. She has to pay her P.O., parole parole officer, pass you money or be violated Monday. She's already raised it all except $179. Now, you are going to put somebody in prison not because of a crime that they committed, but because they didn't fill your pocket as fast as you told them to. When you put them in a position where they can barely have a way to raise any money, that's that's the type of pathways that lead directly to prison cells. You don't necessarily have to commit a crime; you could just be broke, and that's enough of a crime to send you back in, where you generate thirty, forty, fifty thousand or more a year as an inmate.
5: You said a mouthful there, Max. So. You know, I was just going to add that when they start talking this 1 in 34, so they're not even taking into account the people who have multiple relatives in prison. Right. Some have right. generations in prison, the grandfather, the father, and the children, you know, multiple what generations, sometimes like that? both parents. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, man, it, it's, it's really deep. You know, sometimes it's both parents. Or it's a, a grandfather, a father, and all of his sons. You know, it's just staggering the numbers. So the numbers are even higher when they just t- they're just saying okay, one in thirty-four, and I don't think that they factored in just that multiple multi-generation uh, uh, effect.
3: And they're including children. They're counting every person in this country children and the elderly, you know, centurions and whatnot. That's all included in the 1 to 34, which is why I said it's a fallacy of the average. But even being a fallacy of average, if that's a national average, it's still insane and unacceptable.
5: Right. So, Max, th- there, uh, can you please recite the numbers again? You're co- co-director of state operations as to – Uh, the projections of how many state constitutions will be on the ballot this year? Just give the update on the numbers.
3: Um, Yeah, sure. I can do that real quick. At this point, there are uh, potentially 13 that could make it. We've lost a few. There was more than that originally. We've lost a couple. We've gained a couple. So at this point, it's 13. Potentially two are already on the ballot. Two more are only like one step away from the ballot, and the rest are moving towards it. They have to go through these committees, but the problem that we're having is the gag rules, which was the same thing that happened to the abolitionist antebellum period movement, um, where Congress wouldn't even let you talk about these things. They were illegal to speak about in certain places. And you see that example occurring through the CRT argument, the uh, critical race theory argument, where places like Florida, they're saying that they're writing bills based on people's feelings the white fragility bill, where you're not allowed to talk about any history that could potentially hurt white people's feelings by association. (laughs) It's crazy. So 13 states that, and we're just talking about legislation. There's that many plus more that haven't gotten their legislation yet, but are working on it. Thank
5: you for that. And for those who just heard Max talking about that, uh, white fragility bill it's real there'll be a link on the page where the florida gop pushes ridiculous white discomfort bill and also max i want to ask you about uh louisiana and its status when it comes to removing slavery from its exception clause from its uh constitution
3: um louisiana has to resubmit their bill in order to try to get it through for 2023 As uh, our listeners, longtime listeners know, uh, this year they did not pass through committee. Nine white Republicans uh, stood up and said, no, we want to keep slavery in Louisiana. Even one went so far as to say it's the most dangerous bill that they had ever seen come through that body, uh, saying that it would force the state to reexamine every felony case throughout the state, and they weren't willing to open up that can of worms which is basically saying our uh, convenience is far more important than your freedom. So if you're in prison with trumped-up charges, if you've been railroaded, we don't care. We ain't got no time for this. So they're re-submitting the, you, but they're active.
5: And where's the slavery capital?
3: The slavery capital isn't that of the Louisiana? world? is
5: Louisiana?
6: Yeah, isn't it's that Louisiana?
3: Yeah, Louisiana has been known as the prison capital of the world, incarcerating more people per capita than any other place on earth.
5: So with that being said, it's no surprise that they voted to keep slavery, because I would even go as far to say that it's probably the, the, the biggest revenue generator within the state. You know, I have to do some research on
3: that. It's around when I I did my research back in 2015, it was nearly 700 million dollars a year for the DOJ budget. 700 million, nearly Mm. a billion dollars a year for the DOJ budget alone. It's probably much higher than that. And also, I'm not sure if they incorporated the parishes' jails because the parish jails are used like little kingdoms by these sheriffs who make their money by storing bodies in their parishes, and those aren't prisons. Well, I do know wow. one thing about Louisiana. When they did that, uh, it made them the first state body since the Civil War to say, "Yes, we want a path to enslavement in our constitution."
5: That is just unreal. That is unreal. Uh, any any other news stories you wanted to get into?
3: Um we got about five or six minutes. Let's throw the, the number out there one more time if anybody wants to make a question or comment. It's 515-605-9814. And remember to press 1 on your keypad. Also, I forgot to give a shout-out to uh, Brother Sean Darling. He was there in our Vermont hearings as well. Uh, he was so nervous in the beginning. It was his first time, you know, <laughs> doing that. But he made it through, and that's the type of courage that gets us where we need to go, uh, you know. I- I've also realized... Right. A position that I hold now, you know, and it kind of blew my own mind a little bit. As you know, I've been a spoken word artist for um, basically my whole life, Uh, and I've I've made a lot of achievements in that uh, artistic realm, becoming the Poet of the Year a couple times. At one time, my wife and I were listed as the top poets in the world, in the country, and in the state simultaneously. Uh, So we have achieved a lot of things there. And now I realize I'm going to Senates and Congresses and doing spoken word poetry. That's my new venue. That's where I'm featuring at now. Next week you'll find me <laughs> in Vermont before the Senate. <laughs> you know, in right. California, Louisiana, I've become like an old hand at this now. I know what how to you know how to put this stuff together. I've never had any clue. This is all you know something that unfolded. So that's my new area where I feature at now is in Senates and Congress speaking my spoken word <laughs>
5: yeah congratulations to you brother in fact <laughs> let's give you a round of applause
3: I, i've never let go of a spoken word of poetry no matter what i do i'm always going to be a poet and i've always tried to take it to places that it hasn't been before and basically that's what i've been
5: doing you have this unique skill where you'll be talking or you'll write something and it'll be a poem and most people don't know it's a poem.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I do that on purpose. I I, I literally hide uh, the structure of the poem. It'll have a rhyme scheme and you won't realize it's got a rhyme scheme. It, It has all the themes, it has the hooks, everything, and it reads more like an essay than a spoken word poem. Until you realize, wow, all of that rhymes, <laughs> you know.
5: Right. That's it. So, yeah, and congratulations there to you other, on
3: that. There's one other story I did want to get out there before we finished up our program for tonight. <laughs> the story about the detective out in the Bronx um, mm-hmm. who was recently uh, charged with uh, perjury and falsifying information? Apparently, he had lied on everything that he was called into as a witness for and including the cases that he was involved with as a undercover narcotics policeman he had set people up he lied on them about having drugs and as many as 133 defendants between 2011 and 15 were indicted and right now they're throwing all of those cases out it can go up to as many as 500 cases for this one wow. corrupt and so when you think about, you know, if you don't do the crime, you won't do the time. Think about that 500 people who didn't do the crime and nonetheless still got railroaded into a prison by this corrupt cop, and he's only one. There are a million law enforcement officers in the United States today. This is just one person, 500 people. Imagine if you had the numbers from all of them. You'd probably be in a civil war already. you
5: that's staggering, just thinking about that. You know, when they always talk about the bad apples, I mean, one one bad apple can have as many as 500 people falsely accused sitting in prison right now. That's just one. And that's only talking about uh, the cases where people were indicted. That's not even counting all of the people who, you know, just uh, – had to go through exposure of just sitting on Rikers Island. I mean, just being there alone. I mean, we heard uh, the gentleman who called in last week, you know, where he's been there for 34 months and he hasn't been convicted of anything. So he's just there and the mental anguish that goes with it, you know, so that's, that's that portion of it. That's not even getting into those who have gotten convicted. So that's 500, maybe. A potential of 500 convictions, but that's not counting how many arrests he has in total. Where people just had to spend time on the island, or just spending one day in jail turns your whole life upside down. Many people have, you know, no show no call jobs where they end up getting fired, or you know you get arrested in certain areas, and you know next thing the landlord is bringing an action against you to have you evicted. You know, it's just many things that come along with that. So there's uh, so many collateral damages behind just this one officer. And as you said, with the million officers, man, we, the numbers would be staggering.
3: Staggering. Um, you know, like, and it goes all the way up the chain. It's not just the police who do it. It's the, the prosecutors who do it, the judges who do it, and even uh, private industry. Like the judge who was sending all those children to to jail in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. It was like I think it was ninety something percent of the cases that she had sent, whether well, she sent children to jails, were all black children, and she's allowed to retire, so she's up for retirement right, right now. And that's that's right. a oh, prosecutor.
5: Yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, the one from Tennessee. Tennessee. You mean the judge? Right.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The one from Tennessee. Um, was it Angela Corey? Uh, I
5: think she, anyway, yeah. Uh huh. And she's retiring because of guilt or something like that. She said.
3: I'm not sure, but she should not be allowed to retire. Her ass should be in jail. She,
5: yeah, uh, she's going to be retiring, collecting a pension, all of that stuff.
3: Right, and, and the other thing with the judges—remember the kids with cash scam? Uh, scandal yes. Where they found out that the uh, judges in Pennsylvania were getting kickbacks for sending children into the for-profit private facilities they had there. They made, was making like $2 million a year throwing children into prisons. Um, you know, so, again, we got to change our mind when we start thinking about everybody who's in these cells as deserving of it because they committed some kind of crime. That's just right. not the case. Nothing in the history of the United States shows us that they have a fair and impartial justice system. Nothing about it.
5: Nothing. And this just goes to show unequivocally that the courts clearly have said Congress has to do something about this. We're going to see this going on over and over and over and over again as long as there is this incentive. There's so many incentives for this system to uh, operate in this manner. And it's going to continue to go on until Congress steps up and does something about it.
3: Well, we know the keys to open these doors, and we got Mm -hmm. them, and we're turning them. It may be a little slower than we might want it to be, but we got the keys, and we're turning them. That's a big-ass door that ain't never been opened before. (laughs) It's going to take us a minute, (laughs) you know? Right. Uh, But we're here, and we're doing the best that we can, and the best that we can – is absolutely epic in proportion. Uh, you know, as I said, I've never seen any kind of effort like this across the country happen before since the antebellum period, where so many states are involved in changing their constitutions, remove offensive pro-slavery language, or insert protectionary language against slavery and involuntary servitude. Uh, that's just amazing and. and Many of these states have never changed their constitution. Like New Jersey hasn't changed theirs since the 1870s, and we're doing it there. So, yeah, it's epic in proportion. I just wish that the media would pick it up and give us the push that we need and the pressure that we need to move forward on it. Yeah,
5: that's a a conversation for another time, but, but you're definitely right about that.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a conversation for another time. Listen, next week uh, for our listeners, we are going to be rocking some amazing, amazing testimonies across Virginia, oh, not Virginia, uh, Vermont, as well as a couple other states uh, where people are talking about these exception clauses while in front of the Senate or Congress or committee to remove them. Um, it's just amazing. I was talking to Kamal and others yesterday about, how all of these testimonies are really a goldmine to use right now of education that's going unused. People are standing in front of entire committees in Congress and Senate and speaking words that will echo in history uh, just as sincerely as those of our our abolitionist ancestors' words have. And it's important that we get those words out for others to hear. So next week we're going to be playing some of that so you can hear it. The week after that, we got Brother, well, wait a minute, let me, let me not skip ahead. Also coming in to join us will be Brother mm-hmm. Mark Hughes, who is the lead organizer uh, in Vermont for PR2, the Abolition Amendment, from the racial, Vermont Racial Justice uh, Alliance. So he'll be joining us next week. The week after that, we got Brother Curtis Davis coming in from Louisiana. He's the lead organizer for Decarcerate Louisiana, also spent 25 years in Angola Prison. So he's going to be joining us the week after that, and at some point, I'm hoping to bring in the keep your fingers crossed the Nevada Attorney General, Aaron Ford, uh, who also testified in favor of these exception clauses being removed. Man,
5: that's 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 a good schedule right there. I'm loving I'm loving hearing all of that, and just uh, reminder to everyone that to uh, remind you to subscribe to all the news information and music you hear subscribe to our youtube page youtube.com slash abolition today because we've covered so much and sometimes there are things we can't even get to but we still put the information there go to our facebook page uh abolition today uh go check the archives we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, where you know all the major podcast platforms. Go there, listen, because I, you know, I've been going to different things and I'm hearing people say, "Oh, I wish I knew more. I wish I knew more. Where can we get this information?" Well, here's where you can get the information, because Max and I have dedicated our time to doing thorough research and bringing forth the information. And we're in our third season. We're probably about 150 episodes now. I don't even know the number right now. But we're in our third season max.
3: Yeah, we got a lot of a lot of information out there. Make sure you follow all of our work. Uh just keep in mind who you're dealing with out here. Remember, right now we just saw an entire party against a coup d'etat. Uh including using violence, explosives, guns, you you name it, they've done it all. To think that they wouldn't also use slavery is illogical. Mm. Wow! I gotta throw out my fox. comment here.
5: <laughs> yeah, I, I had to. Be, I had to be silent on that one just so that I could just sink in for a second.
3: Right. You know, like just so you, it could they, sink they, they in. Everything. They'll have Nazis on Mars, but they won't enslave people.
6: <laughs> right.
3: right okay. Right. Anyway, man, we got a powerful uh, conclusion for this evening's episode, episode four, season three. Uh, we've got. Ossie Davis reading Frederick Douglass uh, uh, from the series that we put out here. And uh, it's about what happens after they abolish slavery in 1865. What did Frederick Douglass say was next? Because people ask us so much, what's next? Matter of fact, that was our show last week, right? What's next? Right. Let's let, let's let Frederick Douglass answer that question using the voice of Ossie Davis. So with that being said, I just want to say thank you all for listening tonight. Uh, We'll see you again next week. Same abolitionist station, same abolitionist channel. I
5: like that. (laughs) I see what you did there. And we just want to close out and thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Samer Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center prismatic dreams and the abolished slavery national network we also want you to remember that you can text end the exception as one word no spaces to 52886 and follow the prompts this will send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th amendment max already gave you the breakdown as to what the bridging the gap is told you remember to subscribe to our youtube channel youtube.com slash abolition today for all the news information and music you hear hit up all the podcast uh podcast platforms look for abolition today so we'll be back next week with another master class on slavery abolition so until next week think about abolition today peace and bless peace
3: abolition Unlike the
10: movement for the abolition of slavery, the success of the effort for the enfranchisement of the freedmen was not long delayed. In addition to the justice of the measure, it was soon commended by events as a political necessity. As in the case of the abolition of slavery, the white people of the rebellious states have themselves to thank for its adoption. Had they accepted with moderate grace, the liberal conditions of peace offered to them, and united heartily with the national government in its efforts to reconstruct their shattered institutions, instead of sullenly refusing as they did their counsel and their votes to that end, they might have easily defeated the argument based upon the necessity for the measure. But their apparent determination to re-enslave the Negro in some new form of slavery made it essential that the freedmen obtain the shield of the ballot box. Consequently, there came in due time the Great Amendments to the Constitution, the 14th and 15th, which invested colored men with citizenship and the right to vote. The adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments and their incorporation into the Constitution of the United States caused many of my former associates in the cause of the Negro to believe that their work was finished. Some even cautioned me against demanding too much for the colored people. They reminded me that Only a decade ago, Negroes were slaves without any rights, and that in an amazingly short time they had been freed and transformed into American citizens and even given the right to vote. Instead of retiring from the field, I once again flung myself into the battle to assist through my speeches and writings in the removal of the hardships and wrongs which continued to be the lot of the colored people of this country. What I said and wrote during these years can best be summed up in the statement I made during my speech in Washington, D.C. in April, 1883. What Abraham Lincoln said in respect to the United States is as true of the colored people as of the relation of those states. They cannot remain half slave and half free. You must give them all or take from them all. Until this half-and-half condition is ended, there will be a just ground of complaint. You will have an agreed class, and this discussion will go on. Until the public schools shall cease to be caste schools in every part of this country, this discussion will go on. Until the colored man's pathway to the American ballot box, north and south, shall be as smooth and as safe as the same is for the white citizen, this discussion will go on. Until the colored man's right to practice at the bars of our courts and sit upon juries shall be the universal law and practice of the land, this discussion will go on. Until the courts of the country shall grant the colored man a fair trial and a just verdict, this discussion will go on. Until color cease to be a bar to equal participation in offices and honors of the country, this discussion will go on. Until the trade unions and the workshops of the country shall cease to proscribe the colored man and prevent his children from learning useful trades, this discussion will go on. Until the American people shall make character and not color the criterion of respectability, this discussion will go on. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. I can remember when, as a boy, I sat on Kennard's wharf at the foot of Philpot Street in Baltimore and saw men and women chained and put on the ship to go to New Orleans. I then resolved that whatever power I had should be devoted to the freeing of my race. Thereafter, in the midst of all opposition, I have endeavored to fulfill my pledge. 40 years of my life have been given to the cause of my people. And if I had 40 years more, they should all be sacredly given to that great cause. <sighs> it's get
6: some days my chest. Tough times, I hope you're up. We'll be right, cuz we always is. But I feel like God to cry How many brothers got to die How many months they killing mine They'll try to justify it. Oh, each and every time Playing in the park Taking you a jog Sitting on the couch In your own house Never seen a matter what we do You think we don't matter But we do, you got a problem Cause the city on fire But you quiet when niggas die Nothing told about that body That we buried you're god, now you no longer have to worry. It's so hard to sing these words out loud. All these beautiful, precious black lives. Lost in the name of senseless white pride. Tears falling from us. How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many mothers? You ain't no better if you're silent You talking about the city on fire Where your rage when my people die We ain't slaves, let like my people fly Now it's time to watch my people rise How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die?
9: 18 plus.